Jake Ducey says, if you don't love what you do, it's time to make a change. And that's what he did when he dropped out of college and took off for Guatemala. It all started because I was a 19-year-old studying business and it wasn't addressing who I was and what I personally desired. I felt I was stuck inside of a, a desk. Coming up, hear how a rush of youthful adrenaline can take you out of your comfort zone and motivate you to finally follow your dreams. Travel writer Matt Kepnes is mastering the practicalities of budget travel. The author of How to Travel the World on $50 a Day explains how you can upgrade to a flash packer instead of just being a scruffy backpacker. So the flash packer is somebody who wants a nicer hostel, comfier beds, whereas the backpacker is trying to do it on you know a dollar a day, just scrape by. Plus, listeners share their own excellent adventures in the hour ahead. It's Travel with Rick Steves. There's a fearless approach to life among the young that many people seem to forget as they get older. But I suspect the enthusiasm of our guests in the hour ahead is contagious. And it might just change your perspective and your plans. Hi, I'm Rick Steves. Coming up, the blogger and budget travel writer known as Nomadic Matt tells us how he averages no more than $50 a day for comfortable journeys around the world. We'll also get inspired by the exotic adventures of our listeners a little later in the hour. A few years ago, Jake Ducey decided he needed a change. He became disenchanted with his business studies in college, and the excesses of being 19 nearly killed him. His basketball scholarship and growing up surfing in Southern California didn't necessarily guarantee a sunny future either. So he took off to see what the world had to teach him. Jake's enthusiasm has made him one of the youngest members on the motivational speaker circuit today. He joins us to share his story now on Travel with Rick Steves. Jake, welcome. Thank you for having me. It's a real honor. Tell us about your trip, Jake. It all started because I was a 19-year-old studying business, and I felt that it wasn't addressing any of the things inside of me. It wasn't addressing who I was and what I personally desired. I felt I was stuck inside of a, a desk. I realized that most of us are gambling on the biggest risk of all, and that's the bet that one day, then we can buy the freedom to do what we want later in life after we made money or after we did what's more traditional. And so I decided after a little bit of contemplation to take a one-way plane ticket to Guatemala and start backpacking a bit. I really wanted to write and I thought that the best way that I could learn how to write was through experience. We'll talk about the various stops, but just quickly in an overview, Jake, how long was the trip and where all did you go? It was about six months, hmm. and the beautiful thing about it was that I planned to go at least for a year. Part of me was like, well, maybe I'll never come back. I'll just keep heading around. And ultimately, I, I realized after I had a little bit of a scare, I had fallen off of a 10-foot or so cliff in Indonesia. And I had realized then, after these locals had saved me, that I wasn't looking for something in the world that I needed at some certain location in another country that I had found that my life was about inspiring, especially other young people to take that adventure in their life, whether it's traveling or whether it's pursuing their dreams. So there I was in Indonesia, which was my third stop. And that's ultimately what led me to Thailand, where I ended in 14 days silent meditation. So I did a nice little full circle. It started in Guatemala. I had slept on the beach all through Australia. And the common thread, which I found so many other travelers have experienced, is you really need very little to live a happy life and to see the way people were living in poverty. And, and just to be outside of my comfort zone was really this learning experience that I was seeking but wasn't finding in the education system. I earn my living by writing guidebooks, and it says on Tuesday you do that, and then on Wednesday get up early and make a reservation and do this. And your kind of travel really struck me as sort of the, the flip side of that. I mean, several times in the book you say you had no maps and you had no guidebook. You, <laughs> you just arrived with no reservations. Tell us about when you arrived in Australia. I went to Australia literally knowing nothing about it. I did that everywhere I went. Part of the thing that I really wanted to get out of traveling was to be able to find a bit of calm amidst the storm, being okay, being in total uncertainty, because I felt that's where I could grow the most, that I grew up 
always having everything structured, everything set up. So in Australia, what I did was take a greyhound down and found myself in this little town called Byron Bay where I slept on the beach. And I met people from 10, 20, 30, 40 countries. I found myself in a VW bus cruising around with some Israelis that were fresh out of their mandatory army sentence. I was picked up by some incredible people while I was hitchhiking. And these things that I kept seeing were that all of these people around the world, we actually had, I actually had, and, and I believe many of us do as well, is we actually have a lot in common. These 25, 26-year-olds that were fresh out of the army in, in Israel, I had the same in common with them. They wanted to find adventure. They wanted to find happiness. They wanted to find peace. And I was able to find more and more in that when I wasn't so stuck in here is my plan. You know, Jake, when you talk, I, one of my favorite things is because I'm a generation older than you, is to think of the magic I had when I was your age, that it's still there today. I mean, you mentioned meeting these Israeli guys after their military time. I remember hanging out with an Israeli draft dodger back in the in the 1970s, and she just left her world and saw the world, the, the entire world, as, as her playground. And it just reminded me that these are the good old days. You know, you, you can't hope that they'll be here later on. You'll wake up and your life's all behind you, and where are the good old days? These are the good old days today. And when I look at your book, it's a travel book, it's a guidebook, but there's no sights in it. It really is talking about how to live out of your comfort zone and just grow through that. And your audience really is high school graduates like you who are wondering, should I take a gap year or should I jump right into the rat race and get into my career faster than everybody else? What advice would you give to high school grads who are measuring, should I take a gap year or will I fall behind and, and regret that? And it's such an awesome question. It gave me the chills because something that I thought was so unusual that I didn't know was that most people my age in that range of high school to college through Europe, they actually do take a gap year. And I travel around and I speak at colleges, I speak at high schools, I talk to thousands of young people, and I just try and share with them that it's not as serious as it's made out to be that we're 18, 19, 20, even up to 25, 26. We're still so young and we've seen a lot of older generations, a lot of our parents or parents' friends getting to that 50, 60-year-old mark and going through a career and never really finding anything that really made them feel alive, any adventure. And so I just really encourage them to just relax and like take everything in. And for me, traveling was an opportunity to really find out where I wanted to spend my time. And I think that that's a more important question to ask as a young person asking ourselves rather than what do I want to major in or where do I want my career to go. Jake Ducey describes the six months he wandered the world and how it changed his life in his book, Into the Wind. His latest title is called The Purpose Principles, How to Draw More Meaning into Your Life. Jake's also scheduled to participate in the Warped Tour Rock Concert Series all across North America this summer. His website is jakeducey.com. That's spelled D-U-C-E-Y. So, Jake, this is so exciting for me to think of inspiring young people uh, before they get set in their career channel to get out and embrace the world. Tell us in a concrete way, because you talk about how travel can empower us and open us up. What did Guatemala teach you? There's a lot of people around the world that are living with little to nothing and that they were still finding things to be appreciative for and still finding ways to make the most of what they have. And so it made me reflect on all the times in my life when I didn't realize that. Maybe that Buddha quote that you used in that chapter, you can only lose what you cling to. What you cling to. You know, you met a lot of people who are just your everyday Joe Sixpack on the street from different cultures that were like teachers or prophets, and it was great that you were able to talk to them. You went to Indonesia, and you went to Ubud, the wonderful cultural capital on the in the middle of the island of Bali. Tell us what you learned in Ubud. I had actually lost my wallet when I was there, and these locals that didn't have anything took me in. What I really saw there was that you can have everything, but if you don't really have people that love you or you don't really love people, that it's nearly impossible to be fulfilled mm -hmm. and that there's something more to life than, as you were saying, just mm -hmm. these things, that the connection is a really important element that goes a long way. That's one of my favorite things is go to what we would consider desperately poor parts of this planet and find how much riches are there with their community and, and with their love. And 
I've really been struck in, in, in the rich world how many wealthy people live with a mindset of uh, scarcity, and in the poor world, how many beautiful people live with a mindset of abundance. Now, you've capped your experience in Chiang Mai, in Thailand, and you went into a Buddhist temple or something and had 14 days of silent meditation. Tell us what that was like. You were all by all alone with yourself, really, for 14 days in Thailand. It gave me this space to really recognize that one of the things that we miss so much, that I was missing so much when I was so stressed out about this and that, is that I never really just would stop and just like take a breath. And that was an incredible thing because when I was in the 14-day silent meditation and my mind wanted to say, this is too hard, you're going to fail, you're going to go crazy, whatever the mind was saying, when I could just really stop and, and take a breath, I realized that I'm not going to die. I'm not going to go crazy that the thoughts that we think are so real and so scary, they're really just going to be gone in a second. Wow. You've learned a lot as a young kid, and you're so energetic and creative about sharing it. In the end of your book, you wrote, we are powerful enough to realize any dream we have for the highest good of all. Not only is it our responsibility to live our destiny, but if we don't use our talents to make a difference now, we'll be the ones who witness the demise of our beautiful world. That's pretty heavy-duty stuff. Does that still make sense to you? Yeah, it makes total sense to me, and that's what really moves me forward today. You know, there's been a lot of incredible things that have happened in my life from without a publicist and budget to Into the Wind doing so well to Penguin Random House picking up my next book. And, and another thing travel really showed me, and I think what we're seeing in the news day after day is there's more wars, there's more destruction of the environment, there's more failing education systems, there's more corruption in political systems. And these things, we need to address them. My generation needs to address them. I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. And, and we've been talking with Jake Ducey. Jake took a six-month trip around the world as a 19-year-old, learning about himself as well as the rest of the world, and he reports on that beautifully in his book, Into the Wind, My Six-Month Journey Wandering the World for Life's Purpose. Boy, those are pretty heavy thoughts, Jake, but I got to tell you, my generation was pretty idealistic uh, when, when I was your age, and uh, now we've been sort of sucked into this whole rat race, and uh, I'm afraid we're going to leave your generation a lot of problems. And uh, I just hope you can get some traction and, and spread these ideas. And, and thanks for all the energy you're putting into that. More power to you, man, and happy travels. Hey, thank you for having me, Rick. My dreams. You'll find a link to Jake Ducey's TED Talk in this week's Travel with Rick Steves program notes. That's in the radio section at ricksteves.com. Up next, one of today's most popular bloggers and authorities on the tricks of budget travel shares some of the ways to help you see the world on $50 a day. Nomadic Matt takes your calls at 877-333-7425 in just a minute on Travel with Rick Steves. Support for Travel with Rick Steves comes from Rosetta Stone, believing that an adventurous spirit and some basic language skills make all the difference when connecting with someone from another culture. Offering a method of immersion and speech recognition to help you learn one of 30 languages. Learn more at rosettastone.com slash ricksteves. Matt Kepnes had an office job for a couple of years after college, but he decided to quit at age 23 after a vacation to Costa Rica. The experience made him want to keep traveling and see what else was out there all around the world. Little did he suspect that 10 years later he'd still be a full-time traveler and that he didn't need to be rich to keep on traveling. Along the way, 
Matt's picked up plenty of practical pointers on traveling light on a small budget without sacrificing all the comforts most people enjoy. His Nomadic Matt blog includes budget tips for dozens of countries and monthly updates on using the latest travel tech and gear. And his book, called How to Travel the World on $50 a Day, includes tips on using credit cards overseas, saving money on transportation and accommodations, and how to alter your budget from country to country. So Matt, what was it about your first trip to Costa Rica that turned you into a full-time global traveler? You know, I had an office job, and I took my two weeks vacation. I originally was going to Australia, but my friend backed out, so I ended up in Costa Rica. And when I was there, it was just, I was exposed to cultures and people and food and environs that I had just never been exposed to before. And I just got hooked from there. The ability to have my day as open and free as I wanted was really what hooked me. Give me a a moment that kind of creates this, like, different viewpoint on your life. One of my most vivid memories from Costa Rica is when we were in Arenal and we just took this night tour and there's animals everywhere. We have a flashlight through the forest. I just remember thinking, I took the same tour. You can see the little flashlights in the frog's eyes and stuff like that? Yeah, yeah, that one. Oh, man. I'd never seen something like that before. It was one of the many, many wow experiences I had had. I just love it. So you've been traveling for years now. And your whole notion is you can travel the world on $50 a day. A lot of people would say, well, yeah, sleeping under a bridge and and eating bread and and jam. How does the arithmetic work, Uh, 50 bucks a day? What do you mean by that? Any country can be done on the cheap. It depends on how cheap you want to be. $50 a day is a lot easier to achieve in a country like Thailand. Um, In fact, if you were spending $50 a day, I would tell you you're overspending. Um, Whereas a country such as Norway is a little bit more difficult and takes a little bit more thought and couch surfing and maybe camping and cooking more of your own meals. So you can go from couch surfing and buying groceries to staying in simple hotels and going to local corner restaurants, depending on the cost of living in this country compared to that country. But you can do it on average for $50 a day. Yes, that's right. So it's an around-the-world daily average. Now, does that include your, your transportation, or is that just your daily expenses of eating, sleeping, and sightseeing? That is a total all-inclusive number from start to finish. Wow. So if you want to go for 100 days, if you got $5,000, you can do it. You sure can. I mean, you might not be able to do it, say, through Scandinavia. Right. You might have to go through Eastern Europe or South America, you know, but it's doable. What's an example of some expensive mistake you made yourself that you learned from and you can share in your book? One of the most expensive mistakes I made in the beginning was not realizing that City tourism cards exist. These museum passes, sightseeing cards. I love museums and attractions, so I heavily spend on that in a destination. But by buying these cards as sort of a one-off, you know, entrance fee to all of them, you can save substantial amounts of money, as I'm sure you know. When I was your age, we had a phrase, it costs. I mean, if it cost, we couldn't go in, basically, and that yeah. shuts the door on a lot of sites. We would occasionally slip through the back door or something like that that's tough to do these days. But now, something we have that we didn't have when we were younger is this museum pass concept, and it pays for itself in, in three or four admissions, doesn't it? It does, it does. You know, for most of the big cities, most people will see at least three or four sites. So it's a chunk of money, and if you're just going to do four or five sites, it's still expensive. But if you're really a, a busy sightseer and you get a three or four or seven-day pass, you got the whole city. You've got the golden key to the whole city with this pass, and oftentimes a lot of tours that come with it and public transportation and so on. Yes. What's, what's an example of a city pass that you think is really good? I think the Paris Museum Pass is one of the best in the world. Why? You know, it's 45 euros and it gets into 80 museums or so, including Versailles, which is just 20 euros by itself. Uh, The London Pass is really good. The Stockholm City Pass is good. Some of the passes are actually greedy in disguise, I find, and they give you admissions to things that nobody wants to see anyways, and you have to pay for the, the major sites that everybody wants to see. So you have to you have to analyze it a little bit before just jumping into it. Is that a, your experience? Oh, yeah, definitely. You definitely want to look at what is offered versus what you want to see. For example, I did the pass in Tallinn. I always buy the pass and do the math. I would never recommend someone to get that pass because what they offer is not what people really want to see. In Tallinn, so, in Estonia. Yeah, Tallinn, yeah. Estonia. So, I mean, their tourist board got together and they thought, how can we subsidize these boring sites to stupid international <laughs> travelers and let's sell them a 
cheap pass to sites that nobody wants to see, and as you learned, it's not a good value. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking with Matt Kepnes, and uh, Matt's book is called How to Travel the World on $50 a Day. His website is nomadicmat.com. Hey, Matt, your book is sort of a general book, but if you're actually, you know, staying in India or Mexico or Thailand, what sort of guidebooks do millennials use now in their travels? I think Let's Go Europe was the standard go-to book when I was a kid. It's essentially out of print. Do people still use guidebooks, or is it more crowdsourcing on the web? A lot of people still use guidebooks. When I still travel in hostels, most people still have a guidebook. But which guidebook would that be? What, what are the series that are good for vagabonds and uh, you know cheapskates? Lots of people use the Blue Bible, the Lonely Planet. You call the Lonely Planet the Blue Bible? Yeah. Is that because their covers are all blue? Yeah. Apart yeah. from they're very good. I mean, I use them when, whenever I'm traveling, in especially the developing world. There's just nothing out there that really is the Vagabonder's Guidebook anymore other than the uh, Lonely Planet series. But uh, Vagabonding Guidebooks seem to have gone uh, gone out of print. Yeah, you know, even the Lonely Planet has upscaled themselves a little bit in their suggestions. It's not as backpacker, vagabond as it used to be. So if you're in Costa Rica or, or India or Thailand or Japan, what sort of sources of information do you find online that are helpful? One of the best parts of sort of the rise of the Internet is the rise of blogs and online planning sites. So there's a lot of destination experts who have specific niche websites. So I look at online information. I look at what the tourism board offers. Usually online, they offer a lot of robust information about what to see and what to do. I use guidebooks when I'm on the ground. And I like going into hostels. Even if you're not staying in a hostel, you know, they deal with an audience who is very budget conscious. So you can just go into the hostel and ask them information, and they'll give it to you. You know, that's a very good tip. You've got free walking tours. You've got movie night. You've got cheap beer. You've got lots of friends. Even if you're not staying there, you find that that's a good sort of hub of information. Right, yeah, and it's all listed on a giant bulletin board. And in many countries of the world, people will list, hey, I have a car, and I'm going to this destination. If anybody needs a ride, Mm -hmm. we can split the cost. And it's all listed there. You know, a lot of people think, well, I, I'm not staying in the hostel, but that doesn't mean you can't use it as an information source. So, Matt, how old are you? I'm 33. Oh, you're, you're over 30 now. Yeah. Oh, do people still say don't trust anybody over 30? No, not that I know of. <laughs> Good. So you're, you're writing for the, uh, the, the student backpacker and so on, and I, I hear this term flashpacking. What does flashpacking as opposed to backpacking mean? So the flashpacker is somebody who wants a nicer hostel, comfier beds, nicer facilities, Wi-Fi, maybe a common room. They're willing to spend more money on maybe a nicer tour, Hmm. whereas the backpackers, you know, trying to do it on, you know, a dollar a day, just scrape by and are willing to inconvenience themselves if it saves money. So these are young, young, better-funded travelers that still want to stay in hostels because that's the social scene and, and there's lots of fun going on with a lot of people. I find that there are kind of designer sort of boutique hostels these days, uh, Lisbon is famous for having, you know, hostels that are like little spa resorts that are still for youth hostelers. Those are becoming increasingly popular. You know, as the millennials get older and they have grown accustomed to technology and apps and amenities, they want to take that into their travel space too. So there's a whole set of backpacker buses and hostels that cater to that audience who want the backpacker vagabond experience they don't want to rough it maybe as much as <laughs> uh, the kids these days. Did. When I was young, we stuck yeah. out our thumb in the rain and we ate the leftover breakfast for lunch. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking about how to travel the world on $50 a day with Matt Kepnes. That's the name of his book. Our phone number is 877-333-7425. And you can email us at radio at ricksteves.com. And Bob is calling in from Silver Spring in Maryland. Bob, thanks for your call. Hi, Rick. How much of that $50 a day is spent on food? You know, it varies from country to country. You can do it, say, in Thailand for about $5, you know, if you're eating the street food. In Europe, I would give it more 20 25 I tend to eat out one meal and cook one meal, and that can average to about 20 25 a day. And a good thing about uh, youth hostel is you get your own kitchen where you can cook for the price of groceries. And in your book, Matt, you talk about you save about 70% for your eating costs over restaurants if you cook at the hostel. Yeah, especially in expensive countries with higher taxes. All right, so if you're spending $20, $25 in Europe, it gives you $25 left for your accommodations and sightseeing. 
What kind of accommodations? You finding hostels? Well, I know yeah, in Eastern you, Europe you can find them cheap, but Western Europe? Yeah, you can still find very, very cheap hostels around. You know, food is a very variable because everyone has their own, you know, diets and needs and wants. So I usually do a 20 for accommodation, 20 for food, 10 for everything else. And that averages about 50. Now, Bob, Matt did couch the whole thing by saying it's more expensive in, in more expensive countries. And you have to, if you're spending 50 bucks a day in Thailand or India, you're, you. you're losing the, the opportunity to save a little money yeah. for the Norways and the Germanys. But, you know, I yeah. think if you were, you could sleep well and safely and you could eat nutritiously for $25 a day for your bed and $25 a day for your three meals. If you really were hardcore, I could do it in Europe. Obviously, it costs you 25 bucks to go into some sites, so sightseeing is going to take a big hit if you're on that uh, tight of a budget. Yeah. But thank goodness there are hostels and institutional places that rent by the bed instead of by the room. And Matt, talk a little bit about Airbnb and couch surfing because this is the radical new change that, that I've yet to really appreciate. What are the pros and cons of each? So the rise of what is called the sharing economy has really allowed people to travel a lot cheaper because it connects locals who can offer them space in their house. So you have the couch surfers who are locals who are offering you a couch, an air mattress, or sometimes a room. I've stayed in all three uh, for free. Uh, then you have Airbnbs, which really is a rented room in someone's apartment. And so if you're a backpacker and you don't really want to spend the money on the dorm, the couch surfing is good for you. My understanding is couch surfing is sort of like servas. It's not a, a money thing. It's just a, a way for people to have visitors from interesting places in their house and, and have a friend, whereas Airbnb is just the new way to get a bed and breakfast. Like in the old days, we used to actually walk down the street and knock on the door and check out the room or go to the tourist office. Today, much more efficiently, you just do it with this uh, service online. But Airbnb is a profit thing, and couch surfing is the people-to-people thing. Is that correct? Right, right, that's right. And I think that people love couch surfing if, if you're the kind of person that's flexible and really wants to meet people. If you're just looking for an alternative to a hotel, but you're not that into people-to-people stuff, Airbnb is uh, the slam dunk. Oh, yeah. You know, I just came back from the British Virgin Islands, and I rented a room for 50 bucks. Um, the hotel was 200 you know, so it's a substantial savings. There you go, Bob. There's some hope for people with 50 bucks a day. Yes, thanks. Thanks for the information. Thanks for your call. Okay. Happy travels. Thank you. Phyllis is calling in from DeMott in Indiana. Phyllis, thanks for calling. Thanks for taking my call. Hi. Yeah. <laughs> um, I'm a big fan of both of you. And oh, thank um, you. one of the ways that I've saved money on my last trip and planning to save on my next trip is using credit card points to buy my airline tickets. So we flew to Europe. My daughter and I flew to Europe for $83 each. I know, Rick, you don't talk a lot about credit card points to fly, but I know Matt does. He talks about it, and I think it's a really good way to save money. Matt, do you want to say a few words about that? The airlines have invested so much in these loyalty programs, and especially selling points and miles to the credit card companies. It's a big source of revenue for them, that they've really expanded these programs over the last few years. So there are so many opportunities, not just through travel-related credit cards, but online shopping portals, dining programs, contest promotions to accumulate a very large amount of frequent flyer miles that you can redeem for free travel. It is what allows me to travel so often at such a low cost because, you know, if you have to factor in airfare around the world, that $50 a day number is going to go substantially higher. But if you can do that for free, that number is going to go a lot lower. And so points and miles really allow you to do that. Another thing you talk about in your book, Matt, is the advantage of an around-the-world plane ticket. You know, the economics of that rises and falls. What's the situation now for a budget traveler wanting to go around the world using one of these tickets? So there's still really a, a good value for people with a set itinerary who may want to go somewhere a little far from a major airport. Like, you know, you want to go down to South America, then hop to Easter Island, which is an expensive flight. But you can include all these segments and sort of that one round-the-world ticket. So you can get really expensive fares at an average price. And so I like them. I think they're really good for people who have more set dates and set itineraries because they're kind of a pain in the butt to change. Mm-hmm. But, um, if, but if, you're willing to, for, if you're willing to nail yourself down and you know where you want to go, there are certain scenarios where you'll save a lot of money with the round-the-world ticket. Is that right? Yeah, definitely. 
just in a few seconds, what's an around-the-world plan? How much would it cost? How many stops? How long can you take to do it? So an around-the-world ticket will take you in one direction around the world. So let's say we start in New York. We can go east or west, but we have to keep moving in that same direction. A four- or five-stop ticket will cost a couple of thousand dollars. Two thousand bucks, four or five stops around the world. You know, people pay fourteen or sixteen hundred dollars just to go to Europe these days. Yeah, yeah. So you know, I would say a couple of thousand to twenty five hundred. So it really depends on the stops you're doing. But you can basically, you know, New York, L.A., Hong Kong, uh, one stop in Asia, London, back for twenty five hundred or so. They're a good deal. Phyllis, does that sound interesting to you? Yeah, that sounds like a great idea. I'm going to look into doing that one of these trips. <laughs> yeah. All right. Hey, thanks for your call, Phyllis. Thank you. Okay, bye now. Bye. Nomadic Matt's our guest right now on Travel with Rick Steves. Matt Kepnes provides advice for discount flights and lowering your expenses overseas on his website and blog at nomadicmat.com. He also offers budget travel tips in his book. It's called How to Travel the World on $50 a Day. The latest edition includes new chapters on China, Japan, and India. So, Matt, there's a lot of alternative forms of travel that people on a very tight budget need to know about in order to maximize their experience with their limited uh, resources. One of the very clever options is woofing. Explain that. So woofing allows people to work on farms around the world in exchange for room and board. It's extremely popular in Australia and New Zealand as well as some parts of Europe. It's growing in popularity in Asia as well as South America. And so if you want to do more with your holiday, you know, stay place longer, get to really know it, this is a really good option to exchange your labor for room and board and, you know, have fun on a farm. And you don't have to be a farmer. So what is woof? Is that is woof the sound you make when you're out of breath after working on the farm all day long? That's the sound I make. <laughs> but it's a cultural experience. You're learning something. Yeah. It's healthy, and it's almost free. Yeah, it's willing workers on organic farms. Oh, that's what it is. Willing workers on organic farms. W-W-O-O-F. Yes, woof.org. Woof.org. Matt Kepnes, fascinating stuff. Thank you for helping people who would like to travel but don't have the budget a lot of people think is necessary to travel to get out there and enjoy the world. Thanks for having me. Happy travels. You'll find links to Nomadic Matt's blog and book in the radio section at ricksteves.com. So, what kind of adventures have you been having? Stick around for some extraordinary travel tales from our listeners. That's next at 877-333-7425. One great way to connect with the locals is to speak the language, or at least some of it. Rosetta Stone is a fast, fun way to learn. It's got helpful tools like online video chats with native-speaking teachers. You can take the Rosetta Stone demo or purchase the program at a special discount at rosettastone.com slash ricksteves. Now, it's your turn. Tell us about your own travel adventures and what they taught you or how they changed the way you look at the world. Our number at Travel with Rick Steves is 877-333-7425. Or by email, it's radio at ricksteves.com. Mark's on the line in Crawford, Nebraska. Hi, Mark. Hello. Thanks for calling. Do you have any oh, sort welcome. of um, travel tales or uh, experiences you'd like to share with our, our listeners? Yes, I do. This is uh, when I was in Pompeii in 1980, and I snuck in the city at night under a full moon on January 4th, and I'll never forget it. In my opinion, that's the most beautiful city in the world because time has stopped and her citizens still walk her ways and avenues beneath the wine sun. And it was just wandering through the town of Pompeii and to the moon, and you could see the silhouette of embracing lovers in the shadows of the Colosseum. Mark, you're talking about Pompeii, the ruins, right, that were destroyed by the eruption of the volcano 79 years after Christ. And today we go there in the middle of the day, and there's all the tourist crowds and the dust and the noise and the groups, and you snuck in at midnight. (laughs) Yes. Whoa, and you could feel the presence of uh, the the people who once lived there. Oh, yes, it was incredible. It was, like I say, that's my favorite city on Earth. It's just, 
you know, there was the haunting mosaic of a couple who lived in the palazzo on the ways of the wealthy, and it was this little tiles of pink and green and black, and her swept-back hair with little fallen ringlets, and her penciled brows under eyes gazed across the centuries through time. Whoa, and, you sound like a poet. You're looking at the ruins, so are you looking, yes. are you looking at reliefs or mosaics or paintings or what? Well, I'm looking at all of it. Like, yeah. there was graffiti that adds a strangely poignant touch of life to the cities lost in time. It's sleeping within the arms of the mountains. The mountains took it back. And the tiled courtyards and the humble altars to the gods are there, and there's yeah. little bits of evidence of that a fox might be in there. You see a flash of red as a fox goes about its fox ways, and wow. it's just incredible. Now, you know, I understand, uh, Mark, that the ancient Romans mixed broken pieces of shell and other reflective white things into their pavements so that it would, uh, the moon would bounce off it, and at yes. night they could see the sidewalks. Yes. Did you notice any of that? Oh, yes. It was the, the ruts of the chariots are just inscribed deep, deep into the stone, and you walk along there, and it's like little dancing stars on the ground. And so, the mangy, slinking dogs of the daytime were different at night, though. Slinking dogs. Yeah, there would be a lot of dogs and in, in, uh, cats, I suppose, in the ruins of Pompeii. But yeah. now, I want to paint a picture for our listeners, because this is something that is quite evocative for me. They've got these roads and uh-huh. elevated sidewalks where they could put plumbing under this, the elevated sidewalk pavement stones. Uh-huh. And then, as you mentioned, in the street, you see the grooves ground down by the wheels of the chariots. And you can tell if it's a one-way street or a two-way street by how many grooves there are and little stepping stones that let you sort of prance across the street without stepping into the dirty lower road. And you've got those, uh, what do you call them, dancing stars into the pavements that reflect in the moonlight. Could you almost sense the commerce and the traffic of Pompeii 1,900 years ago? Oh, yes. It was incredible. There was the graffiti, and uh, the ways of the wealthy were lined with poplars and the tumbled walls, and then there was a, a road going straight off to the north where they had the tombs of the wealthy. And there's mosaics of the dead as they looked in life, and they kind of gaze down at you in surprise at the intrusion of strangers. You violated their private domain. It's midnight in Pompeii. Did you go out into the um, stage area of any uh, amphitheaters? Oh, yes. I went into the arena, and it was the silhouette of embracing lovers, like I said, in the silent arena. And there was the carved names of politicians that just glared down and ponderous inscribed dignity through all those centuries still looking mm. at us. On a practical note, you did this quite a few years ago, uh, but you actually physically climbed the wall, or was it yeah, just... Yeah, just climb the wall. Climb over the wall. Kind of tumble down. You know, I've had different travelers tell me stories of sneaking into places after hours. You know, you have to decide if you're going to take the risk or if you're uh, okay with it from an ethical point of view. But boy, from a poetic point of view and a travel point of view, nothing like being all alone in Machu Picchu or Pompeii or wherever when the guards are gone and the tourists are gone and it's just you and the sort of sort of the um, images and, and the spirit of the past. Yeah. All right. Well, that gets me thinking. Mark, thank you very much. And it sounds like you could write a, a collection of poems on your experience of, of Pompeii all alone uh, under the moon at yeah. midnight. Well, you're welcome. All right. Happy travels, Mark. Thanks for the call. Bye-bye. Whoa, Pompeii in the wee hours all alone, just with the ghosts of the past. So many images can be uh, brought up. And of course, you got to know a little bit about Pompeii and life back in ancient Roman times, and there's plenty of information there available. And uh, all over the ancient world, you can find yourself, whether it's a gated place that charges admission like Pompeii, or just a lonely, ruined Greek temple on some island that you can go to when everybody's gone. There's something really, really powerful about it being an ancient site after hours when you are the only person there. It could be the Pantheon in Rome. I mean, I go there early in the morning or late in the in the day, and I'm just the only person in the Pantheon. In the middle of the day, it's a human traffic jam. But if you're there crack of dawn or, or the start of the day or the end of the day, you are literally all alone. On top of the Acropolis in Athens, I'm up there when the guard is blowing the whistle, telling the stragglers to get off that mountain, to be all alone with the Parthenon on the Acropolis. As the sun is making the shadows long and the and the colors are warmer, and, and you can gaze out at the sea and imagine the, the spear of Athena sparkling in the sunshine 2,300 years ago. Those are the magic moments that you can have when you take the initiative and create the magic. 
Our Travel with Rick Steves listeners have some pretty amazing travel stories they're sharing with us right now at 877-333-RICK. You can also post your travel stories in our radio forum. You'll find it in the radio section of ricksteves.com. Jer in Seattle emails us this tip about the sites in southern Ontario. Jer writes, I visited Toronto and Niagara Falls during the summer, and the best part of the vacation was a side trip to Stratford, Ontario. Originally, I went to see the Shakespeare Festival, but I found that walking the town was really the highlight. I played outdoor pianos all over town, ate at the number one rated poutine joint in Ontario, and explored artists all along the Avon and rolling countryside. I highly recommend staying at least one night because there are so many really good restaurants. Great tips from Jer from Seattle about visiting southern Ontario. Jonah's on the line from New York City. Jonah, thanks for your call. Do you have some travel stories to share? Well, I just went on a backpacking tour of Laos and Thailand. And I know that Thailand is a bit more of a popular destination for American tourists to visit, so I'd rather speak about Laos. It's a little more off the beaten path. Yeah. It's actually pronounced Laos, which is one of the first things I realized when I got there. I think it's part of the heritage of the French colony. It's pronounced Laos, not Laos? Apparently, the S is silent. They all say Lao, and Lao is a noun, and the adjective, the people are Lao, the language is Lao. And what was it like? It was just fantastic. It's a very, very beautiful country. It's mostly rural. It's very well preserved in its natural state because it's just, it's a poor country, which is, of course, negative, but the positive impact of that is that it's mostly preserved in its forested natural state. It's very rural. 75% of the population still practices subsistence agriculture. So even the capital city is has a feel of like a small town, the capital. It's called Bien Chen, and it's sort of a lazy, laid-back, riverside capital. You know, very mellow. There's not even a movie theater. The biggest attraction in town is a bowling alley. Wow. So a very relaxed way of life, sort of a slow pace. Everybody in Laos has some place to go, but they're in no hurry to get there. You, you mentioned it's a, a rural society with just basically subsistence farming. Can you sort of take us on a walk? I mean, because that's one thing I remember in Southeast Asia is you can get yourself quite easily into these idyllic rural settings where you've just got rice paddies and villages that seem to grow organically out, out of the ground. Take us on a little yeah, walk. Yeah, you summed it up. Basically, my summation of Laos is that you've got these very flat, narrow, rice-growing valleys. I was there in the planting season, so the valleys were full of farmers that were planting the young rice shoots and the rice paddies. In fact, it's wet rice cultivation. And those valleys go right up to these very steep limestone cliffs that are just very stunningly beautiful. And mm. It's an easy country to travel around because of recent Chinese investment has made a bunch of very good new highways, mm. which are very new and don't have a lot of traffic because, again, there's not a lot of infrastructure. So it's an easy country to travel around, especially if you rent a motorbike and just get yourself into these beautiful remote mountain villages very quickly. So, Jonah, when you're traveling through Laos, or Laos, can you get yourself in a situation where you're sleeping out in the rural wonder of the area and then you wake up in the morning and you, you kind of just sit on your porch and marvel at where you are? Certainly. Something that's becoming more and more popular as Laos gets discovered as a tourist destination is village homestays, where just ordinary people, just ordinary farmers who have nothing necessarily to do with the tourism industry, will open up their homes to you, and for a very reasonable fee, you can arrange to stay with a host family and just live the life they live and you know eat what they eat and uh, be prepared for some fairly rustic conditions. But I, I would recommend that's one of the best ways to get the real feel for the country. So describe when you stay in a village homestay, breakfast and the plumbing. <laughs> plumbing is often uh, squat toilet. Most villages have cisterns, so they will have running water, but not necessarily for the toilet. And bathing also will happen communally outside in a sort of a courtyard. So bring a sarong. That's the traditional way of bathing. That's how they bathe modestly. As far as meals, sticky rice is eaten with every single meal. It's a sort of more glutinous Southeast Asian rice. It's very common in Laos and parts of Thailand as well. And that's sort of with every meal unconditionally, and that can be eaten with curries and different kinds of soups and incredibly fresh, vibrant, delicious vegetables. And every everything that's in the meal is right there, ingredient. There's no, mm. you know, there's no additives, there's no chemicals. It's just vegetables and meat. It's all right there. It's delicious. And you talked about renting a motorbike. Is that a good way to do Lao? I think so. I mean, be prepared for some technical hurdles. You know, there's not you, you, you may break down hours away from the nearest mechanic, so just be prepared to change your plans. But like I said, the roads are mainly good, and there's not a lot of traffic. The roads that are good are good. The roads that are not good are very drastically not good. So be prepared to go over some bumpy terrain, mud, rocks, dodging ox carts and stuff. But the, the contrast between the new roads and the old roads is quite sharp. So you venture into a little village that has almost no tourism as a Westerner on a rented motorbike. What's the welcome that you uh, receive? 
I had villagers come right up to the edge of the road and holler greetings in at least three languages. They'll say bonjour because of the French colonial heritage. They'll say hello. They'll say hello in their native tribal language or in Lao. People are very friendly and welcoming of outsiders, especially the little kids. And I just had almost unconditionally smiles and greetings. And mm. it's you know it's a very friendly country. They have no real reason to mistrust outsiders, even given. America's very dubious past involvement in Laos. You know, I'm mm-hmm. thinking of the secret war conducted parallel to the Vietnam War. But even considering that recent past, they're very welcoming and trusting and friendly towards outsiders. Yeah, my sense is Southeast Asia has pretty much put the Vietnam War behind it, regardless of what they would have thought of the United States' involvement there. And today it's uh, kind well, of. Well, as much as they try and put the Vietnam War behind them, sadly, three people per year still die from unexploded ordnance that's left over from the bombing campaign oh. in the 60s and early 70s. They dropped more bombs on Laos than all the sides in all of World War II dropped on each other. And about 30% of that ordnance didn't explode upon impact. So out in the jungles and the rice fields and the countryside, there's still a lot of unexploded wow. American bombs that have been rusting there for decades. Hey, Jonah, when you were traveling in Laos, what would you estimate your daily costs would be for room and board, uh, just for eating and sleeping, just ballpark? It, var- it varies a little bit between the smaller outlying villages and the bigger cities, but I don't think I ever paid more than probably 5 or at the most $10 per night for a room. The sort of backpacker hostel culture has not really caught on, so you're more likely to have a private room, often with a private bath, than you are to get the dorm room bunk bed right. situation that's, that's more common in Thailand and countries that have more of a backpacker presence. But accommodation is very affordable. You, you know, pay a couple more dollars if you want air conditioning, which, depending on what time of year, is you know, very recommended. But I don't think I ever shelled out more than 5 or at the most $10 a night for accommodation. Meals can be had for as cheaply as $2. 20 bucks a day could cover your public transportation, room and board, and a little extra pocket money. Definitely. Wow, that sounds like a good vacation. Jonah, thanks for sharing uh, your adventures in Laos. Thank you for taking my call. Have a great day. Happy travels. Bye-bye. And John's on the line in Salem, Oregon. Hi, Rick. Hey, John. Uh, do you have some uh, travel tips or experiences to share with our listeners? Well, it's, it's interesting your previous callers talking about Laos. There's a slow boat that goes from Hue Zai in the north down the Mekong. It's a two-day slow boat trip down the Mekong River to Luang Prabang, which is a kind of leftover colonial French town. Amazing place. I agree with totally what he said about Laos. It's an amazing place. I highly recommend it. People are more friendly than almost in any other country that I've visited, and they're not in your face to buy things. You almost have to ask to buy things in the market. Mm. So... But I couch surf around the world. Three years ago, I traded my mileage, accumulated mileage for an around-the-world trip. So I took nine months. I had 16 flights. I spent several weeks or up to a month in different places that I visited. And I did a combination of couch surfing and hostels. John, just for those of us who aren't familiar with couch surfing, can you kind of just give us a thumbnail definition of what is couch surfing? You did it for nine months, essentially, all around the world. Okay, Couchsurfing is uh, it's a website, and today people are into Airbnb, but Couchsurfing, you don't pay for your accommodations. So you put a profile online, who you are, interests, your kind of background. Then in every city, every country, you can go online and find other people who have done the same. So you can kind of match yourself up with people who have similar interests. And then there are recommendations People who have stayed with you give recommendations on their experience of couch surfing and staying with you. And then after you've stayed with someone else, you go on and give an evaluation hmm. of what your stay was like for them. And so it's you have, absolutely free, and people are doing it in order just to meet other people and share cultural insights and just have fun together. Absolutely. It's free, hmm. and you sleep on the couch. I've slept on couches. I've slept on mattresses on the floor. I've slept in total bedrooms with my separate bath. It depends on... Huh. Is where you are and who you're staying with. So, excuse and me, John, you went around the world in nine months. Uh, what would you estimate or guess how many different places you couch surfed in in that experience? I couch surfed at about 12 different locations, and often it's for two or three days, but there are especially a couple of experiences I had in India where it was their first experience in couch surfing, and I expected to stay two or three days. I ended up staying with this family for two weeks and they've become lifelong friends. The young people in the family took charge of me, so I've become their older brother or grandpa, and I'm still in touch with them by Facebook all the time, have a standing invitation. <sighs> in South Africa, in Stellenbosch, I stayed with a graduate couple. He was from Tanzania. She was from South Africa. They gave up their mattress on the living room floor for me for 
again, like about two weeks. I had the experience of going to their graduation dinner and sat across the table from Nelson Mandela's grandson, who had just graduated in their class. Wow. Now, when you think about couch surfing, a lot of Americans were always into monetizing things in the first world, and everybody's wondering, do I pay, and what's it worth, and all that. I get a sense in much of the world, it's just a blessing to have some nice guy from the other side of the world come in and be your guest. Did, did you get a sense that people did this just joyfully because they couldn't afford to travel to the United States? They could have an American camping out on their couch. Well, I think they did, and some of them have regular couch surfers. So the idea behind it is that you're going to offer your couch or whatever accommodation you have, I often take them out to dinner or buy food. So in lieu of paying for my accommodation, I do something to help them out. Generally, they were good experiences and you enjoyed the the vibe in the houses? Yes, and you never know exactly what to expect, but Mm -hmm. by choosing people that you think you're going to have something in common with, you know, sometimes they're working and busy. And I've had people leave the key under their doormat Mm. in the U.S., and I haven't seen them for two or three days, so I stay in their house like totally by myself. and meet them two or three days later. Wow. I mean, that's a little bit unusual. Yeah. But I also host, so it's reciprocal. So people can contact me. So I have people coming through Salem who stay with me. And recently I had two brothers from Atlanta who were coming through. They wanted to see Portland's uh, microbreweries, Northwest. So we spent several days together. I had two girls from Montreal. So I gave them my bedroom. I slept on the couch. And, John, you hear about Airbnb having some legal problems because they're not registered as hotels and they got paying guests and so on, but couchsurfing is completely just for the joy of uh, teaming people up, so there's no legal issues or anything like that, are there? Absolutely. Well, I think people should be aware of this new way of connecting people to people. John, thanks so much for your call. Okay, thank you. Bye. Travel with Rick Steves is produced at Rick Steves Europe Through the Back Door in Edmonds, Washington by Tim Tatton with Sarah McCormick and Isaac kaplan Wilner. Thanks to our friends at KCLU Thousand Oaks and the Radio Foundation in New York for their help this week. You can add your comments or travel reports to our online feedback forum. It's part of the extras you'll find each week in the radio section of our website, ricksteves.com. Support for Travel with Rick Steves comes from Rosetta Stone, helping you prepare for your trip to a foreign country by learning a new language through talking to a native speaker. Learn more at rosettastone.com slash ricksteves. Rick Steves teaches smart European travel. At ricksteves.com, you'll find an archive of interviews from his radio show, free audio tours of Europe's top sites, a monthly travel newsletter, and a world of information to help you turn your European travel dreams into smooth and affordable reality. To gear up for your next European adventure, begin your trip at ricksteves.com.